Acts chapter 21. We finished last week with verse 15 of chapter 21, which tells us, after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. He's talking, Paul, the apostle has been uh, in Caesarea. Uh, he had left Miletus, which is a, a town south of Ephesus, where he had met with the elders there uh, and had headed to Jerusalem for Pentecost. He wanted to get there in time for the feast. And Stayed a week in a city named Tyre, which was on the Syrian coast north of Palestine there. And then he had come down uh, to Caesarea. <clears throat> now, when he was in Caesarea, we saw that he and his companions had stayed at the home of a man named Philip the Evangelist. Now, this Philip, was is, he's known to us from <laughs> uh, when early in the book of Acts, I think it's in chapter 6 or 7, uh, the... Apostles can't, they don't have time to minister the word of God and to serve tables, so they raise up these deacons. Uh, and one of them was Stephen, who would be the first martyr of the church. Another was Philip. And so there they had served in Jerusalem alongside the apostles at the very early stages of the church. Uh, up until Stephen was essentially murdered by a mob of angry Jews. So uh, at that time, remember too, we talked about all of these things took place during a time when a a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, which is a city up in a a region north of of Israel, uh, a guy by the name of Saul, he was a religious leader and he was stirring up a bunch of persecution. He was vigorously coming against, working against the church. He'd also uh, uh, had become known for imprisoning Christians. He did not like Christians at all. And in Philip's case, he was forcing people out. There was It was called the dispersion, and the diaspora. And, and so people were having to leave Jerusalem because of the heavy-handedness that was going on against the early church. So uh, Here's Philip now with Paul at his door, essentially coming to <laughs> to Caesarea. And we talked about the fact that there must have been a significant work in Philip's heart in order for him to come to a place actually having seen Paul standing there giving approval to Stephen's execution. Here's Philip now. Uh, standing there and saying, yeah, Paul, come in and, and, and come and lodge with me. So uh don't want to belabor that again, but it's, it's a very significant event that in reading between the lines must have been a powerful, powerful moment. So we also uh, <laughs> talked about a, a guy, a prophet by the name of Agabus. <laughs> He's a dramatic guy. And with this dramatic gesture, he came to Paul and demanded that he take off his belt, hand it over. And when I think of Agabus, or when he, I think of him talking, I always get like this Hebrew thing and say, you know, hand me your belt, you know, which probably sounds more German than Hebrew, but I'm not very good at that. But the point is, is that, you know, this guy comes up to Paul and he's just being very theatrical. <laughs> and it, he takes Paul's belt, ties himself up, ties up his hands and his feet with his belt, and he prophesies over Paul and he says, so shall the Jews in Jerusalem do to the man who owns this belt. You know, and he goes through this whole deal and they'll, they'll deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles and and all. And, and they were really trying to talk Paul out of going uh, because we looked at the difference between what the Holy Spirit was doing, speaking to these people and giving these prophetic utterances and they were genuinely from the Holy Spirit. But we looked at... at <laughs> They were interpreting that as telling Paul not to go. What Paul's understanding was, was that that was a time of preparation. Nothing in the text that indicates that Paul was in willful disobedience when he went to Jerusalem. So, as I mentioned last week, again, it was was to prepare Paul. It wasn't to wave him off. It wasn't to say, no, you can't go. So... Uh, anyway, they couldn't persuade him. And so in verse 14, we looked at it, They finally gave up and said, well, the will of the Lord be done. <laughs> and so that was that. Then they packed up and headed for Jerusalem. So uh, the, now 
I mentioned before too, the Bible doesn't tell us whether or not Paul made it to the Feast of Pentecost, but I think it's pretty safe to assume he did. It doesn't specifically say this is the Feast of Pentecost, which I think is interesting because we're <laughs> that's the, the day we commemorate today as well. But pretty safe assumption because there's people from other parts of the empire that we see in the narrative here in Acts 21 that would have come for the feast. Now, there were seven national feasts in the Jewish calendar. Three of those feasts were mandatory. If you were a Jewish man over the age of 20, you had to go. <laughs> and, and so Pentecost is one of those feasts. So there, what that means is there would have been huge crowds throughout the city. I mean, some estimate upwards of 2 million people. Uh, we don't know for sure, but the, the hills around the city would have been flanked with tents. There would have been crowds of people coming in and out of the temple area. And we'll, we'll look at that. I've got a slide I'll show you after a bit. But it would have been a big deal. And so uh, Paul's here. And he's made it in time. We're going to assume that he made it in time for the feast. And uh, there's just a lot going on. So that's what we looked at last week. Here he is. Now he's arrived in Jerusalem. We'll start in verse 16. It says, also some of the disciples came from Caesarea. Uh, with They went with us uh, and brought with them a certain Manasin. Uh, that's an interesting name. Uh, Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple to, with whom we were to lodge. Now, Again, with large crowds, that would be a big concern. We're going to go to Jerusalem. Where are we going to stay? I don't know. Well, Manasin steps up and says, you can stay with me. Uh, we and, and Remember, these events are taking place about a quarter of a century after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. So, uh, And we don't know a lot about Manasin, except he was likely a Hellenistic Jew from Cyprus. Very similar, remember we, when we studied, if you were here in the study or if you studied the book of Acts, a guy by the name of Barnabas that went with Paul on his first missionary journey, he was a, also, he was a Hellenistic Jew, which means he was a Jew steeped in Greek culture from the island of Cyprus. And so Manasin is, and he may have known Barnabas. Uh, we don't know. He may have previously been acquainted with Barnabas. He may have been acquainted with Luke. Uh, these guys had all been followers of Jesus from early on. So verse 17 says, And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now, it would be really good if the story ended right here. <laughs> but <laughs> it doesn't. Now, remember, Paul and his companions, they had brought an offering uh, to the church. Remember, he had collected men from different cities uh, along the way, and these men had traveled with him to come to Jerusalem. And uh, I think that it's, it's significant because they're there to present the offering to the elders, to the, the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Now, regardless of that, Paul was known to these men, uh, the leaders in Jerusalem, and they would have welcomed him anyway. But I think that probably... I imagine, anyway, that they would have been especially receptive uh, because of the generosity that had been shown by the Gentile churches. And that was part of Paul's intent. He needed for the Jews to understand that the Gentiles had now responded to the gospel. They had equal standing. And there was always a rub. We're going to talk about that as we go, because they get they get pretty sideways about it. And, and the, the, the well, I, I get ahead of myself. But the point is, is that he's there and he's coming up uh, to the brothers in Jerusalem, the leaders of the church, uh, and he's received well. So in verse 18, it says, On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and uh, all the elders were present. So James, the James mentioned here is, uh, I mean, I'm like 90-some percent that this is the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. James was, uh, he came to faith after Jesus had risen from the dead, uh, we know that. They did not believe in him while he was alive. Uh, it's, and another thing that's interesting about this is that he had kind of come up through the ranks. He had, he had risen to being a respected leader of the Jerusalem church. There's no mention of the apostles here, the other apostles. 
again, because of the dispersion, many of those apostles had left. We, and there's, there's some extra church literature. It's not biblical literature that talks about where they ended up, where they went and all. But here's James and the elders of the church. Uh, interesting, too, that James had already written his letter. Uh, if you look in the New Testament, the book of James, right after the, the book of Hebrews uh, there, was written by this guy, all right? And his letter would already have been in circulation when these events are taking place. Verse 19, so when he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So here Paul is speaking to them in detail. That word, The Greek word for detail is an interesting word. What it means is literally it means one item after another. So he's laying out a sequence of events of his travels. So uh, he, he's giving them a blow-by-blow description uh, of what had gone on in his travels to these other cities, these other regions of the empire, uh, and the fruit that God had produced among the Gentiles as he carried out his ministry. They're excited. Now, like I said, this wasn't, it wasn't like a book report where they're yawning and they can't wait till this guy stops talking. I mean, they're excited about what's going on, about what God was doing. And uh, the Holy Spirit was being poured out in significant measure. We saw when he was in Ephesus, when Paul spent that three years in Ephesus, the whole <laughs> Asian subcontinent uh, had been evangelized because of the work he was doing from Ephesus. So a lot going on. So uh, not just with his third journey, I would imagine that he was relating at least aspects of his first and second journeys as well. And, and I... I you ever think about, I wish I were a fly on the wall with a particular conversation. I would love to hear, as Paul related these things, I mean, what a fascinating, fascinating uh, conversation that would be. Uh, imagine him telling the Jerusalem elders about uh, his evangelistic efforts. Uh, I just imagine uh, him relating the persecutions, the trials that he had had to endure. We've looked at these in the book of Acts, and there weren't just a small amount. Imagine uh, him sharing the overflow of mercy among the Gentile churches when they related the needs of the Jerusalem church as they gathered this offering, as they collected it from the various churches to carry back and to present that at the apostles' feet. Would have been a fascinating time, a fascinating conversation. Another thing about that is I believe that Paul had a very deliberate intention and purpose in doing this. Remember, when he left, when he set out on his first journey, the gospel had not yet gone to the Gentiles. And a Gentile is essentially anybody that's not Jewish. And so here he is coming back, relating to these the, the elders of the Jerusalem church, all about his travels, all about the things that God was doing. He needs them to understand the love that God has for the Gentiles. He needs them to understand that God wants to save Gentiles every bit as much as he wanted to save Jews. This was a foreign concept to these men. Uh, they, had, they had been steeped in Judaism. And, and again, we're going to look at that, some of the problems that came in the early church as we work through this passage. And they came to understand that God had favor for the Jews and that the Gentiles, I mean, they referred to the Gentiles as dogs. <laughs> they didn't have, they looked at them with disdain. And now these guys had been added in to the covenant. They had been added into Christ. They had been elevated to equal stature as Jews. And they wrestled with it. They wrestled with it a lot. Verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. Now that's saving faith that they're talking about here. And they are all zealous for the law. Now that one kind of sticks in my, in my, <laughs> it's like, okay, myriads of Jews who have believed and they're all zealous for the law. There's a beginning of a problem here. Subtly, but it's there. So the elders, they, they go on to share uh, with Paul that in the same manner, uh, as they had seen him with the Gentiles, that God was pouring out his spirit on the Jews as well uh, and converting these Jewish 
people in Jerusalem and surrounding region to Christianity. So unlike the pagan cultures uh, in the predominantly Gentile cities that Paul had visited on his journeys, the church in Jerusalem and the surrounding region was, for the most part anyway, uh, made up of Messianic Jews. Now, a Messianic Jew is somebody who holds to Jewish heritage and Jewish customs, but has embraced Jesus as Messiah. And there, there are organizations today, Jews for Jesus and some others, that uh, are part of that whole thing. They didn't abandon their, their, their heritage, uh, but they embraced Christ. Now, it's been estimated, and again, these are always loose estimates because different read, you read different things from different people, that somewhere between 25 and 50,000 people in the region around Jerusalem, and Jerusalem in the region around, had converted to Christianity by this point in the first century. They'd come to believe in Jesus as their Messiah. They'd believed on Jesus for salvation based on simple faith, trusted in him for that salvation, and... They continued to follow the law of Moses, not to earn their salvation, but as an expression of their love for God. Well, they no longer saw the law of Moses as a means of obtaining righteousness, because that was what, I mean, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way see the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you can't earn your own righteousness, and that was what Judaism imposed so they're not looking at it that way. They saw it as a means of maintaining a connection with their culture and their Jewish heritage. So the interesting thing about this, as we work through this, you'll see it very clearly. Something that happens when people are being people, especially people are being people and serving their lower nature, gossip. Rumors began to circulate throughout the city that Paul had essentially become anti-Jewish, that he was an anti-Semite. And it just wasn't so, but that was what was being spread among the Jewish believers. Now, this is a problem from within the church. Verse 21, he's, the, James is continuing on here. He says, but they've been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Not true, but that's what they're saying. Saying that they ought to not circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. So the specific charge that was being leveled against Paul was that he taught Jews in foreign lands to move away from Moses, that Moses was no longer important. And he was doing this by telling them, don't, you know, don't follow any of the customs, don't circumcise your kids and all of that. So the question becomes, did Paul actually teach this or did he not? He did teach that Christ was the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe. Absolutely. He did teach that once the Christian faith had come, believing Jews were no longer under the law. He taught that if a man received circumcision as a means towards being justified in God's eyes, then such a man cut himself off from salvation in Jesus Christ. He taught that to return to the types and the shadows of the law after Christ had come was to dishonor Christ because those things were to point to him. They found their fulfillment in him and to go backwards. I mean, uh, it, it, it didn't make sense. Now, I'm going to get into what's called a problem text, and it's not a problem for me. I hope it's not a problem for you by the time we're done. But scholars refer to these as problem texts because they, and, and I'll tell you what, scholars are pretty evenly divided over the text in the passage which follows. Uh, some say that this was a terrible blunder on the behalf of the Jerusalem elders. Uh, they hatched a scheme through which they were trying to appease the Jewish believers, I don't know if you know anything about appeasement these days, doesn't work politically, and it wouldn't work then, but they were trying to appease these guys, trying to placate them. I'm not altogether sure that that's the case, though. Uh, when you look at the whole counsel of God, which we have talked about here in, in the last couple of studies, in looking at Paul's writings and other places, the opposite appears to be the case. 
now, I wanted to, I want to stipulate, you're free to take your pick. If you have the opposite view of what I'm going to teach, go ahead. Don't send me email. Uh, <laughs> because nobody's going to lose their salvation one way or the other uh, over this kind of thing. I mean, it, it, I'm going to give this my best shot. So let's read verses 21 through 25, and then we'll come back. We'll unpack them verse by verse. So uh, they, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, this is James and the elders continuing here. Uh, they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not circumcise their children, nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads, that they may all know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep or observe the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So there's the there's the text. Now, to begin with, very strong wording in the original. The the word uh, that is being that they they saying you teach the Jews to forsake Moses. That word is apostasia. It's where we get the word apostasy. And what's being put forward is they're saying you are telling people to completely abandon because that's what apostasy is. If you're apostate as a Christian, you have completely abandoned Christ. And, and so that's the first problem I see in this, they, that they're putting forth that Paul is telling people, no, you have to completely abandon Judaism. So uh, remember, in chapter 15, we were looking at, the, there were Judaizers, these guys called Judaizers, they were going about the empire and they were teaching people uh, that in order to be a Christian, that you had to observe the law of Moses and that that was mandatory. Now, <laughs> there had been so much trouble over this particular issue uh, in the region of Galatia uh, that Paul, when he wrote a letter to the Galatian churches because it's a group of churches that he wrote to. When he writes to them, he he goes, he dives deep on this problem. Now, and he, a great deal of the book of Galatians is devoted to, look, it's not about the law of Moses. It's about faith in Christ. His beef wasn't about whether or not Messianic Jews held to the customs and observances of the law of Moses, it was when they crossed the line and they stated that it was necessary to observe the law of Moses for salvation. And that's where it became a problem. So on that basis, we really can't claim that, and Paul's going along with the elders' instruction here, that he was advocating the law of Moses being somehow mandatory now because he has already stated very, very strongly the strongest letter in all of the New Testament, by the way, the book of Galatians. He was hopping mad when he wrote it. And so he has been so vigorously opposed to that position that now he's not going to go the other direction. I believe his motivation, on the other hand, was not to impose law. But I believe his motivation was love. And that's borne out here. Uh, he, had, he had a deep love and a deep burden for the Jews, for his countrymen. That's why he wanted to get back for Pentecost. He wanted to be able to bring the gospel to these people because he knew that they were blind. I'm going to look at a couple of passages. In Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, Paul wrote, uh, when he was writing to the church at Rome, he says, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and service of God, and the promises. 
That's not a man who's going backwards. That's a man who has a, a genuine burden, a loving burden for his people. I think that the second passage I want to go to here really clears up what's going on here in Jerusalem as we study this in Acts 21. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 22, we see one of the ways in which Paul dealt with the tremendous burden that he had for the Jews. In verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews, to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law, To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. That's what's going on here, folks. I truly believe that. I don't believe that Paul's out of line. I don't believe the elders are out of line. I think they're trying to address strife in the church. And and were they leaning to their own understanding? Maybe. Were they, were they wrong in doing that? I don't know. Maybe. But I do believe that Paul's heart was not in going along with this so that he could now go backwards and impose the law on these people. Verse 22, back to James and the elders. What then? The assembly must certainly meet for they'll hear that you've come. So what they're saying is essentially word has gotten out, Paul, (laughs) that you're in town, that you're here. And we want to be prepared to address the discord that's cropping up. Because of these rumors and the gossip, the things that are going on out there, we want to be able to face that head on. And that's not a bad thing. Verse 23, therefore do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Now this is where it gets interesting because we get into kind of deep into the Judaism, into Judaism and the customs that they observe. Uh, and this would have been four Messianic Jewish men who had most likely taken what was known as a limited vow of a Nazarite. Okay? Uh, I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. Verse 24, take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep or observe the law. So uh, Judaism, they had developed this short-term Nazarite vow and it was probably from Numbers chapter 6, verse 5. Uh, not going to go there, but there's instruction there. Now, what the Old Testament puts forth is the long version of this, and that's where a guy takes a vow of a Nazarite for life. Now, there were some guys in the Old Testament, and, and one guy, Samuel, Samson, uh, those guys had taken the vow of a Nazarite. That's why, when, remember when Samson had his hair cut, lost his power and all that? John the Baptist was a Nazarite. And what it was, uh, you, know, you had to, you never shaved your head at all in the long version. Uh, that's just how it was. But for the short version, the shortest length was for 30 days. Now, the short-term vow culminated in shaving the head, burning the shavings along with the sacrifice at the temple. And now we saw this, remember when we were in Acts chapter 18, Paul, when he had been in Corinth, he travels down to Sincrea and he says he got his hair cut there because he had taken a vow. Same thing, this short-term Nazarite vow. Okay, Uh, understand the vow of a Nazarite was a vow of consecration to God. It was basically saying, I am giving myself fully to you. And, and so that's what's being done here. The idea was, was being dedicating themselves to serve God. All of this was done in order to correct the false information that was being spread among the Jewish Christian population in Jerusalem. It wasn't being done because now they had some weird mandate. They were simply trying to meet the people where they were at. For them to see firsthand that Paul was not rejecting uh, Moses, that he wasn't anti-Jewish all of a sudden. Verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we've written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood and from things strangled and from sexual immorality. Now, back in Acts chapter 15, uh, when Paul and Barnabas had traveled to Jerusalem, 
with word that false teachers had come to Antioch. They had gone to the, the apostles then and said, look, we've got this problem. They're trying to, to impose these things on us. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, Certain men came from Judea, taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They needed to correct that. So what happened was the apostles had written a letter and sent it back uh, from Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas headed back to Antioch, but they sent a couple of guys with them, a guy by the name of Judas, not Iscariot, another guy, <clears throat> and another guy named Silas, who had been well known. They'd been leaders in the Jerusalem church. They wanted these guys to vouch for the fact that that was what was going on, that they were correcting this. Part of that correction is cited here in verse 25, uh, when they talked about, okay, now concerning the Gentiles, this there's... You don't have to worry about anything. Just in order for them to be able to dine, to to break bread with the Jewish believers who were still trying to hang on to some of the customs that they had, they said, look, just abstain from things that have been sacrificed, you know, abstain from blood and all of that, because they wanted to be able to instill unity among the church. All right? It wasn't this big law thing. It's not the Christian law. It's saying, look, for unity's sake, We need you to do this. They carried it back uh, from Jerusalem. Paul and Silas, in turn, took that on his second missionary journey, and they took that letter, giving that instruction to the various churches that they visited along the way, because this doctrine of you have to keep the law of Moses had crept in significantly into the early church, and they were putting people under bondage and keeping them from experiencing the grace of God that was available to them by faith alone in Christ Jesus. So, uh, verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. Now, they're talking about doing sacrifices, doing offerings in the temple. And you might think, well, okay, that was done away. When Jesus went to the cross, it was the end of the law. And that's true. The sacrifices associated with this Nazarite vow would be sacrifices for consecration. They would not be sacrifices for atonement. Paul would not subject himself to that again. That would be what he says is, why do you subject yourself again to a yoke of bondage? And that's not what's going on. So again, when we look at the full counsel of God and we put it together this makes total sense. If you took this verse or this passage as standalone and you take it out of the context that, in which it is, you can come up with all kinds of wacky ideas about what's going on here. But as we look at the full counsel of God, it makes sense. Paul knew and he understood that the singular atoning sacrifice was Jesus when he went to the cross. And he wouldn't have violated that. Remember, we're talking about a matter of Jewish customs here, not salvation, not sanctification. Verse 27. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is a man who teaches all men everywhere against the law, the people, against the people, the law and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, Trophimus, if you remember when we looked at when Paul was collecting these men to bring them back to Jerusalem to present the offering, Trophimus was one of those men who represented the church at Ephesus when they brought the the offering to Jerusalem. So Paul would have had him as a companion, traveling companion, and they saw him around the city with him. When it talks about the Jews from Asia, that's Paul's, his old enemies, who had likely come to Jerusalem for the feast as well. Again, sort of validates that this is Pentecost that's going on here. So interesting too, that the There's nothing new here. I mean, yeah, different players. But these are the same accusations that uh, they had made against Stephen before they stoned him. 
In Acts chapter 6, we're told that they set up false witnesses who said, this man doesn't cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. So they make these accusations of Paul and they grab him. So I want to show you what's going on here, and I want to do it graphically. As we look at a slide of the Temple Mount as it would have looked in the first century. So uh, this is Herod's Temple. This is the Temple Mount. If you've seen pictures of the Temple Mount today, it has a big golden dome on it, the, the Muslim Dome of the Rock, and that obviously would not have been there. The temple was there. Uh, but notice in blue, I have the word Soreg up there, or dividing wall. What they did, and you know, if you look below that, it says Court of the Gentiles. When you went into the temple, you go through the royal colonnade, which is, that's where the entrances are, uh, there are a couple of entrances. What's interesting, when I was looking at this in, in real life, and I was in Jerusalem standing before the Temple Mount, and looking, it was like they had one door here, and then there are three doors over here. And, and I asked a, a guy, a Messianic Jew, that was with us, what was going on with it, why there were, were these differences in the way that that was set up. And he said, well, the small door is for the entrance. And that's because people would mingle into the temple all day long. But at sundown, you had to get out. And so they would have a huge crowd exiting and they had to have bigger doors. Just a, a side note for that. But here, there was the court of the Gentiles and anybody could go into the court of the Gentiles. That was open. Now, the Sorig was called the dividing wall. And what it was, it was a waist-high wall and it ran the circumference of the, the temple proper. Now, what they had, and I have this, this next slide, they had these stone markers all around posted on the Sorig. <laughs> this is a sign that lasts a long time. This has been enhanced. Um, it's actual stone. This is at a, a museum in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, presently. Uh, but they had these stone markers all around the Sorg that said that if you're a Gentile, you forfeit your life by crossing this line. Okay? You could not, if you were a Gentile, you had to stay in the court of the Gentiles. If you went any further, if you came into the temple proper, if you went past that wall, you're dead. So it's a very, very serious charge that they're leveling against Paul by saying, hey, he took this Ephesian guy, Trophimus, beyond the Sorig. He took him in. And now, and Paul hadn't done that. They just supposed, the text tells it, they supposed that he had because they saw him in another place. And, and I'd love to go into more detail here. If you look at the top right, says the Antonia Fortress, this is where we believe that that was. There's some issues with that because there were a lot of troops in Jerusalem at the time and that may or may not have been big enough to house them. But next week we're going to look at when the Roman soldiers come from the Antonia Fortress and Paul is delivered to them and there's some really just fantastic things that go on there. Uh, as we get into when Paul is actually getting into trouble, remember they had told him chains and trouble await you when you get to Jerusalem. We're going to look at that when we, this is the beginning of trouble. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophetic word that Paul had received all across the empire as he traveled back from, from his third journey to come to Jerusalem. So that's what's going on. They're accusing him of taking this guy beyond the Sorg into this place that was set apart, sanctified for Jews only. Now, a few years, here's an interesting side note too, as we begin to wrap up. Uh, a few years from this point, uh, as Paul would be under house arrest in Rome, he'd write to the Ephesian church and he would use the Sorig as an example. Uh, he speaks of the fact that God, God he, he no longer looks upon Jew or Gentile because now we are all one in Christ. In Ephesians 2 verse 14, I'm going to read through verse 16. He says, For he himself is our peace. This is Paul writing to the Ephesians, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. That's the Sorig. He's using it as an illustration, saying it's no longer Jew and Gentile. We're one. 
says he's abolishing his flesh, the enmity, that means hostility, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. What he's saying there, folks, is that it's not about uh, playing favorites here. It's not a, it's equal opportunity. There is no dividing wall when it comes to the church. There are not the spiritual elite like there was in Israel and then the rest of us. No, we are all one. And praise God for that. That is a wonderful thing to know. So we're going to wrap up here in this passage with verse 30 and it's, we're going to pick it up in verse 30 next week. It says, and all the city was disturbed and the people ran together and seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. Now that would be a big deal. You don't shut the doors during a national feast. (laughs) They went into lockdown. This is essentially what's being told here. And they did that because they perceived that this was such a threat that the priest just locked the thing down. And we'll pick up there. Hopefully that whets your appetite for going further next week. But I want to bring some things out as we close this morning. I want to, there, there's some lessons here for us. And, uh, I want to look at three things. The first I have here, put a sock in it. <laughs> and I know that that sounds weird. My pastor told me put a sock in it. Now that's a, it's a British phrase actually. It, it originated somewhere around 1914 and it essentially means close your mouth. <laughs> Guard your tongue. Now I have to think, I look at this as James, now James outlines the problem with Jerusalem and the church there being tainted against Paul. Uh, and it was a result of people saying things which were essentially untrue. All right. And now I mentioned that when Paul went to James and the elders that the book of James was already in existence. It was already being circulated. And I have to wonder, James just didn't sit there and dream this stuff up. I have to wonder if part of what drove James to write what he wrote uh, was the events that he we're, going, we're looking at here because he talks extensively about the nature of the tongue. And I believe that that he was influenced by the things that were going on around him. In James 1.26, we read, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, and again, in contemporary English, and does not put a sock in it, (laughs) he deceives his own heart. This one's religion is useless. He goes on to devote about half of chapter 3 of the epistle of James uh, to the dangers of the tongue. Uh, in verse 10, he laments, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be so. Folks, seriously, we need to be really, really careful. We're either operating from our lower nature, cursing. It doesn't mean that you're literally cursing, but it means that you're operating from your lower nature and your flesh is on the throne and you are acting like it. Or we're operating from our higher nature. Blessing. We choose. There's no in between. It's one or the other. That's why he says, bridle your tongue. Gossip is real. And it's a destroyer. It's a destroyer of fellowship. It's a destroyer of churches. You know, in my life, in, in all things, in my aspiration, I don't always. Yes, my wife. But in all things, I want to operate from love. Truly, in most things, that means I'm going to be gracious. When it comes to gossip, I'll call that out immediately. So should you. It might be hard at that moment. See, you might not be the popular guy in the room or a girl, woman, but it's the loving thing to do. To not let gossip take hold of our fellowship, our relationships, to not let gossip take place in our workplace, wherever. It's the loving thing to do to call it out. It's not the loving thing to do to let it go because it will grow. And another thing that I, and this is free, this is not in my notes. (laughs) Another thing that I look at when it comes to gossip is there's a principle here. Those who gossip to you 
We'll gossip about you. Call it out. Very important. Second thing I want to look at is scripture interprets scripture. And I think, well, that sounds kind of circular. Well, in a way it is, but it's true. And today's study is a great example of this principle. Uh, now put on your Bible student hat because this is important. And it's this is kind of what Bible scholars look at here. Uh, there are times where with a problem text like this, there, where there's an apparent contradiction. Well, how could Paul be doing that thing with the law? And he already spoke against it. No, 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 no. Now, well, there is usually a good explanation, but it might take some digging to get at. I could have gone to a bunch of passages. I picked the ones that fit the probably the strongest in explaining the other side of what was going on here so that you have the full counsel of God. But it takes diligence, takes digging sometimes. So when you don't understand a passage, hang in there. Within the field, there's a field of Bible studies called hermeneutics. And what it is is a science of studying God's word. And, and it is very, very well developed. All right? Uh, there's an established principle, and that's what this is. Scripture interprets Scripture. What that means is that the Scripture must harmonize. The Bible isn't, it's not an error. It doesn't contradict itself. Usually when I don't understand something, it's because my understanding is limited. It's not because God's Word is somehow limited now. So when you're trying to examine a passage... You gotta approach it with an eye of what the whole Bible says on that particular topic. I'll tell you, if it wasn't for this principle, people would get into such weird doctrines, and, and there are so many things that you can, you can come up, you can just come up with half-baked ideas about a lot of passages. If you're not applying this in your own personal study, and if you're not applying it as you avail yourself to God's Word. Very, very important. Finally, the last thing I want to look at here uh, that comes out of this passage is how wide is your embrace? We want to be narrow-minded. Is the gospel narrow-minded? Oh, you bet it is. And I make no bones about it. Jesus said the path is narrow. That leads to life. So we want to be narrow-minded with respect to the gospel, the doctrines which define Christianity. Absolutely. Those major doctrines, they're not up for grabs. I will argue them. However, I believe that this passage teaches that it's okay to be open-minded in the expression of those things. People are different. And, and you know what? We get weirded out over sometimes nonsensical things. Uh, you know, does that church have a liturgy? Why does that church not have a liturgy? Does that church do old hymns only? Does that church do anything but old hymns? Don't those people know that you've got to dress up to go to church? <laughs> Look at you. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> don't those people know that it's all about the heart? God doesn't care how you look. We do have a dress code here. You have to wear clothes. <laughs> I'm really strong on that. But, you know, the list goes on. We can get hung up on these minor things and, and, and let them divide us. Or we can say, you know what? My embrace is wide. I remember one time I was at a dinner with a, a we were supporting a, a missionary in Thailand. Her name was Rose Martinez. And uh, she was pretty well known. I was sitting next to her at this dinner and I said, Rose, I have a question for you. <laughs> and and uh, she'd been years in Thailand doing orphanages and just a fantastic work over there. And she said, what's that? And I said, if I could somehow mysteriously drop into, invisibly, into a Thai worship service, would I be scandalized? And she just looked at me. And I said, yes or no. <laughs> I don't want, you, you can explain later, but yes or no, would I be scandalized? And finally she kind of, you know, stared at her plate and looked back at me and she said, yes. <laughs> and I said, that's what I thought. Because we worship a lot of times within the, the, the confines of our culture. What we're looking at here is Paul within the confines of the Jewish culture. He's, these are expressions of worship. They're not expressions of have to. 
They're expressions of want to. Uh, Paul goes in, he goes into detail in this principle in Romans chapter 14. We're going to, I'll look at a couple of verses here as we wrap up. <clears throat> he says, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Oh, we need to divide over that. No, we don't. He says, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who doesn't observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. He who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat, and he gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, that's the key, and no one dies to himself. Folks, the point is, you know, we can get, we can get hung up. And I don't believe it's God's will for us to divide. I see the church in Jerusalem here, they're dividing over silly things. Oh, well, Paul, yeah, he's, he, he's an anti-Semite. You know, we need to get rid of Paul. He's telling everybody that Judaism is, you know, that Moses, da, 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 can't be. No, he wasn't doing that at all. If you look through his letters, he expresses his Jewish side a lot, but he never pins salvation on it. He never does. And that's not what's going on here. So as we look at this, as we apply these things to our lives, we want to have a wide embrace. And now, I want to be careful, unless it has to do with false doctrine, draw a line. Blatant sin, of course not. Or somebody attempting to draw undue attention to themselves, that's not good. Other than that, though, we need to have an accepting attitude towards others with regard to how they choose to express their faith in Christ. That's the important thing. What's the result? We can be a room full of really different people and we can experience unity. And that's the key. That's the goal. That's the prize. We are a bunch of really diverse people and we can come together in this place and come together as believers and celebrate our differences as well. And and that's a good thing because we're accepted in the beloved. Cracks, warts, freckles and all. That's how God accepts us. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, we march through this passage here in Acts, I'm thankful. I'm thankful, Lord, that you give us illumination to the differences that we possess really being okay. Knowing, Lord, that when it comes to salvation, there's one way and only one way. And we're grateful. We're grateful for the cross. So thankful for the resurrection through which we have the power to live. And Lord, as we, as we come together as one body, as we grow together, we pray that your Holy Spirit would manifest among us, that we would be filled with your love, that we would be filled with grace. And the Lord, as you're working in our hearts, keep us, bridle our tongues, give us the ability to recognize when we're beginning to stray. Father, preserve the unity among us. It's our heart's desire this morning. We pray, Father, that you would loose your spirit upon us, that you'd work. We give ourselves afresh to you in Jesus' name. Amen.